0: Open your Bibles up to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. When you find your place there, if you'll bow your heads, we'll pray and ask the Spirit of God to help us as we study His Word. Father, we have this time that we've set aside to study the Scriptures together and We pray that your spirit would help us. Even now, in this moment, may you remove any barriers. May you help us to focus our hearts and minds and to forget about the cares and troubles of the week. May you have our hearts be attentive to what you have for us here. That when we leave this place, we will be a changed people. Because we have been in the presence of our God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've just finished a four-week series here out of the fifth chapter of Ephesians. And it was a series on verses 6 through 14 on worldliness, you'll remember. And we were talking specifically about worldliness as it relates to our sexuality. And uh, just to get us back into that, Mindset, I want to revisit a definition that we opened the series with four weeks ago on worldliness, and it's drawn from a really fine book by C.J. Mahaney of that title, Worldliness, Resisting the Seduction of a Fallen World. In that book, Mahaney writes the following, worldliness is, quote, is a love of this fallen world. It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. It exalts our opinions above God's truth. It elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. As we say, this section of the fifth chapter of Ephesians here is the section of Paul's letter where he addresses the church at Ephesus with regard to a Christian sexual ethic. We are to live in the world, but we are not to be of a world, and in particular, shaped by a world that is living in open rebellion to God at every turn, and not the least of which... Is with regard to our own sexuality. We live for sure in a highly sexualized world, much like these of the first century, these readers who received Paul's words to them. Human sexual expression is the good gift of God. The problem is, is that our, in our Fallenness. we try to enjoy that gift by stripping it out of the protective covenant walls of marriage. And in the process of doing that, we twist it back in onto itself until it becomes a gross expression of human depravity. It was a problem in Ephesus. It is a problem here in America in the 21st century. Now, you remember as we were studying this together, let your eyes look just at verse 10, that as we were studying that, we learned there in verse 10 that one of the results of the transformation of the believer from darkness to light is that we are to grow in discernment. Paul says here, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, that we are growing in our understanding of the things that God loves and the things that God hates. And as we walk as children of light, we begin to love as God loves and the things that God loves, and we begin to hate as God hates and to hate the things that he hates. We have now finished here through verse 14 last week. And before we move on, picking it up in verse 15, which we will do, I thought it was important for us to spend a few weeks and look at some specific application that comes out of the teaching of this section of Paul's letter. And in particular, I want to address the topics of modesty and entertainment, the topics of modesty and entertainment. Two subjects that are not talked about all that often in the church of Jesus Christ. These are the danger topics, right? The mere mention of the topic of modesty or entertainment frequently elicits very strong emotional feelings on the part of Christian people. Sometimes it is those that have had bad experiences in churches that uh, have externalized the discussion of modesty and reduced it to basically a dress code, and then that can work itself out in all kinds of really sort of bizarre ways. Also, others, sort of the other ditch, that's one ditch on the side of the road, another ditch on the opposite side of the road are those that basically have been involved in a, in a setting where it's anything goes, it's the anything goes approach, and where each person does what is right in their own eyes, and that also can be a very difficult and painful experience to go through. So as we look at modesty and entertainment, it is our hope it is our goal and it is our prayer that we can avoid these two ditches on either side of the road and instead speak far more principally, looking to derive biblical principles. Now, beloved, something that we just need to recognize about ourselves, and that is that we cannot trust our heart. We cannot trust our hearts in these matters. Matters. It is not a good place to just look inside yourself and say, well, it doesn't bother me, and assume then that everything's okay. The Scriptures tell us that the heart is is desperately sick, right, and deceitful. And so to trust the human heart is not a reliable standard. Instead, what we need is to have our hearts washed with the Spirit through the Word, so that we might begin to think God's thoughts after Him. We are, to one degree or another, like every other generation that has ever lived, the product of our own culture. We are much like a goldfish that lives its entire life underwater without any recognition of the fact that it is all wet. It requires someone from outside the system to look in on it and make the observation that you are wet. And in our case, we need someone, and that someone is God himself, from outside our present world to speak to us through his word so that we might accurately assess the present environment in which you and I live. Now, let me try to put you at ease a little bit on this topic. I will not be a fashion commentator, okay? I am not a fashion commentator, nor am I a movie critic. The truth of the matter is I don't see very many movies. So I am not a fashion commentator, nor am I a movie critic, Nor will I call out specific articles of clothing that I consider to be immodest. Okay? So I'm not going to do that. Not going to do that. But I'm hoping to adequately cover the topic. This is where... I'm not a very funny guy, so (laughs) you did get it. All right. And John Sutton got it. Okay? laugh here. Yeah, so much for that. Anyway, we're going to try to principalize it. That's what we're after. We're going to try to principalize it because it's really, really important. There's just no way to handle any of these kinds of issues without developing real biblical principles and let them guide the individual decisions. Now, a couple other caveats. Let's just say this up front. If the outcome of this series, and it actually is turned into a series, seems like everything does these days, but in any case, the outcome, if the outcome of this series is that somehow Foothill Bible Church develops an ad hoc cultural police force, then we have missed the point of all of this. And in fact, we will deeply grieve Jesus Christ. Okay? So listen to me carefully. This message is for you, and you, and you, and you, and me. It is not for the person next to you. It is for you and you only. Do you, have, you understand what I'm saying here? Okay, good. So we're not looking to begin to um, ferret out those that we consider to be immodest in our midst, all right? Secondly, if when we are done with this series, in fact, I will say if when I am done even this morning, that there is no change in either our understanding or our implementation of the scriptural teachings with regard to modesty and then entertainment when we address it, then we will also have missed the point. Okay? So if nothing changes when we're done here, then we've missed it. Because that would be saying that we've got it all right, and there is just no way that that is true. So we're not looking to to set up the Taliban, uh, nor are we looking to say, hey, everything's cool, leave me alone. All right? So that's kind of where we go on that. One more thing, got to get all these caveats out of the way. I'm not going to repeat them, okay, just these caveats. Uh, Please note, I am not questioning the motives of anyone in this congregation. I am not questioning anybody's motivations as to why they choose to wear what they wear or see what they see. Do you understand that? God alone is sufficient to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's his job by his spirit through his word. That's not my job, so I'm not going to do it. And and through this, please remember, I am not doing it. All right? I am not doing it. So if you feel a little uncomfortable, don't talk to me. Talk to God. All right, so here's how we're going to approach it. I want to approach this topic through a series of questions and answers. Actually, I've arranged six of them. Six questions and answers. All right, six questions and answers to help us get at what I'm calling the heart of modesty. Six questions and answers. And here are the six questions. I'll give you all the questions up front so you know where we're going, but we will only have time for the first question this morning. Okay? Okay. Hey, I think I'm doing pretty good. I'm going to get through the first question this morning. Okay, so six six questions. Here they are. What is modesty? First question, what is modesty? Secondly, what does the Bible teach about nakedness? Third, is modesty only a woman's issue? Four, are there reliable universal principles for modesty? Five, Whose job is it to set the standard of modesty? Whose job is it? And six, and probably the most important one of all, what are the limits of our love? What are the limits of our love? Okay, so question number one. What is modesty? What is modesty? Well, as you begin to break this down, let's just start with a dictionary definition, okay? Let's just start with that. So here's the American Heritage Dictionary, modesty. What is it? You look up the word, it says it is reserve or propriety, reserve or propriety in speech, dress, or behavior, okay? Reserve or propriety in speech, dress, or behavior. Michelle Brock, in her book of the title, What is Modesty?, Answers that is falling, quote, modesty is more about what you are than what you wear. Modesty is about more what you are than what you wear. She also says elsewhere in that book, quote, modesty is an attitude of humility that seeks to please God rather than man or self. It is characterized by restraint and self-control and dignity in dress, speech, and Actions, and then finally C.J. Mahaney in his book on worldliness, he comes at it from a different direction, that of immodesty, and he said he defines that as immodesty is the act of drawing undue attention to yourself. It's pride on display by what you wear. Okay, so those are a few people taking a, a whack at defining modesty. Notice that it includes concepts like restraint, dignity, propriety, and pride and humility. Okay? So it's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, as it were, with regard to clothing, dress, and behavior. Now, these are helpful definitions, to be sure, but I think the best approach for us this morning to really begin this study is to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So that's where we're going to go, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, because 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in particular verses 9 through 10, is the only place in the New Testament where the word modesty appears. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 address the topic specifically of modesty. Now, contextually, let's just get a Get in, you know, get ourselves in the right ballpark here with this letter. Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus, and Paul is writing to him here. And in chapter three, verses fourteen and fifteen, Paul discloses his motive or his reason, his goal in the writing to Timothy, who's pastoring this church here in Ephesus. Paul's going to come. He wants to come and visit him. But before he gets there, he wants Timothy to put some things in order. And so Paul lays out in this letter, look at verses 14 and 15, chapter 3, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy is about proper conduct in the church. Proper conduct in the church. Here in chapter 2, Paul addresses one aspect of proper conduct in the church when the, when the body gathers, as it were. And here in chapter 2, and looking at verse 1, he spells out for them that he wants them to pray for the lost. He wants it to be a regular practice of the church of Jesus Christ when it gathers to pray for the salvation of the lost. Look at verse 1, chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For the kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul is instructing here that the church gathered should be a praying community that is seeking the salvation of all those around them, including those who are in authority over them and probably seem to be least likely to be interested in the salvation that the church of Jesus Christ has to offer. So now, verse 8 of chapter 2 You notice it begins with, therefore. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Paul says, therefore. In other words, in light of his command that the church is to pray, Paul is now expressing who is to give leadership in this public prayer. And what Paul says here is that it is the men of the congregation who are to be the ones who are to lead forth in this public prayer for the salvation of the lost. And in expressing what the men are to do, notice Paul says, I want the men. This is an apostolic um, command. That is, the men who are to be praying here. And he wants them, as they pray, uh, to, to be men who pray whose life is holy. Notice what he says here. He says, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So Paul's laying out here for the men something they are to do and something they're not to do, as it were. And what they are to do is to pray, and they're to pray uh, from a life that is, that is lived holy before God, right? Your hands are, are the vehicle through which your life lives itself out. And so here, the lift up holy hands is essentially to say to have a holy life. And so Paul is saying the men of the congregation live a holy life and lead the congregation to pray. Also, he says, but you need to avoid here two other negative characteristics. They're wrath and dissension. In other words, that the, the men who are leading lives need to be holy lives, not lives marked by the sins of wrath and dissension. All right? And the other thing that we want to just observe here from this verse is that this is a universal principle. I want the men, notice where he says, in every place. So this is not merely a command to Timothy, to the particular church in Ephesus, because they have a certain problem there that Paul is trying to resolve. This is a universal apostolic statement that when the church gathers publicly, the men of the church are to be the ones who lead out in the prayer for the lost. And their lives need to to not be filled with contradiction in that leadership. Verse 9: Likewise. So, having spoken about how he wants the men to operate here, he says, likewise. And that is, that there's a correspondence here. Now, there's something he's going to say to the women that is going to correspond. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, the likewise here, the correspondence that Paul is speaking about is his. His command, his authority, right? He wants the men to do this. Likewise, I want the women to do this. And again, Paul couches it here in positive and negative aspects. Positively, he wants the women to to do certain things. And negatively, he wants them to avoid certain things. And so he is turning here, beginning in verse 9, it runs through verse 15, his attention to the women and their role in the publicly gathered church. And essentially what we can say is, is that Paul wants the women to avoid certain external appearances and replace them with the internal virtues of feminine godliness. All right? That's what he's after. He wants them to avoid certain negative external appearances and replace that with internal virtues of feminine godliness. So let's see how he goes about doing this. He begins, he says, I want the women to adorn themselves. I want them to adorn themselves. The word adorn, kosmein, is the Greek verb. It's an infinitive, and it comes from the noun cosmos. Cosmos. We get the word cosmetics. From that noun, and the, and the basic idea here is to put something in order, or to arrange something, to adorn something, to ornament something. Over, if you'll just slip over here to Titus chapter two and verse 10, Paul speaks there about bond slaves, and they are to and we find the same word, they are to adorn the doctrine of God, right? They are not to be pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That is, that they will order it, they will arrange it, they will ornament the doctrine of God by their behaviors. So when we pull this together, the, the idea basically of adorning something is to, is to draw out its natural beauty. To draw out its natural beauty by ordering and arranging it to look its best. All right, so look back here in 1 Timothy 2, where Paul is saying, I want women to adorn themselves. In other words, uh, I want the women to look their best. I want the women to look beautiful. I want them to look their best. Well, how, Paul? How should Christian women look their best. And his answer now is going to be through proper clothing. Very interesting, right? I want the women to adorn themselves, notice it, with proper clothing. English Standard Version translates it, respectable apparel. Respectable apparel. So... Again this, this uh, the the word translated here as proper or respectable it comes from the same root word cosmos and it and it has the idea again of orderly or beautiful. And and so Paul says that the women are to display their beauty here, they're to adorn themselves, they are to arrange themselves through respectable clothing. Through respectable clothing. Well, what is respectable clothing, Paul? What is respectable clothing? And he will now address that. And he will do it by speaking about attitudes that need to be embraced. And then he will speak about cultural fashions that need to be abandoned. Okay? So that's the second half of verse 9 is attitudes that have to be embraced and cultural fashion standards that have to be rejected or avoided. So he begins here with the attitudes to be embraced. I want women to adorn themselves, to beautify themselves, to arrange themselves properly, respectfully, with regard to their clothing, modestly and discreetly. This is the attitude. Modestly. Eidos is the Greek word. It only appears here the only place it appears in the New Testament, and the word comes from a, a root that means shamefacedness, shamefacedness. That's a word we don't use very often, right? I want the women to, ad- to adorn themselves respectfully, shamefacedly, shamefacedly. And what the word carries with it, and this is important to understand here, is the, the idea of reverence. Reverence, or awe, or respect for the opinions and the feelings of others, or even one's own conscience. This is what it means to be to, to biblically be modest. It implies here in this in this word idos, the idea of a, of a womanly reserve with regard to matters of sexuality. And in particular, shrinking back from anything that would convey dishonor within this realm. That's the idea behind the shamefacedness, all right, is that it is to be modest, is to shrink back from anything that conveys dishonor in the realm of apparel, ladies, all right? To look to the feelings of others, to consider the opinions of others, to think to one's own conscience in these matters and not violate it. Paul goes on, though, beyond, beyond modesty, and he says uh, discreetly, you see it? Verse 9, modestly and discreetly. The idea here is good judgment, good judgment or, or self-control or, or decency or chastity or, or self-mastery of the physical appetites. Again, it's a self-governance of one's passions and desires, Again, it's in the realm, is certainly there's a sexual nuance that relates here with regard to, discreet, to discreetly. So, Paul is saying here that the attitude of the Christian women is that they are to beautify themselves, and they are to beautify themselves in their clothing by avoiding those things that are not decent, that are not respectful, that, that, um, that flaunt passion and desire. These are the positive characteristics. In other words, Paul says that Christian women are to humbly dress in a way that conveys sexual reverence, sexual reverence, or restraint, or self-respect, honor, okay? We live in a world in which... A highly sexualized world in which uh, women are far more f- bold and ferocious in sexual matters than there was not all that long ago. So, these words are appropriate words for us to hear. Now, Paul spoke about the attitudes. He's going to give some specific examples of what to avoid. All right, what to avoid. These are examples that help the church at Ephesus to, to sort of define modesty a little bit, okay? So what Paul's going to do now here in the, in the end of the verse here is he's going to speak about what modesty and discretion do not look like, all right, what they do not look like. So here it is. I want you to dress modestly and discreetly, not with, and then look what he says, braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, so, Paul's against braids, he says. Now, there's got to be more to it than that, doesn't there? And indeed, there is. Now, a little historical context and background here is very helpful. In that day, much like ours, the wealthy and the worldly set the patterns of fashion for the world. Okay? Women's fashions were set by the wealthy. And the worldly. And those patterns were then emulated and copied throughout the empire. Whatever Caesar's wife's hairdo was became a popular standard for women throughout the empire. They wanted to do their hair like Mrs. Caesar, whatever her name might have been. Okay? And if you, if you look at uh, having had opportunity to go to the British Museum some years ago, and you walk through, and you look at some of the, of the statues and so forth of some of these women, you see their hair arranged in uh, these braids, or, or their hair was plaited is the other word, and it, they would be all bound up onto the top of their head, okay? That was the fashionable style of the day. But beyond that is that they would weave into these hairdos gold and pearls. So into their hairdos they would weave certain small things of gold or pearls or even uh, uh, finely meshed gold nets would be placed on top of it. And it was at that time and in that day considered the, the epitome of high style, high fashion. And it was worn by uh, these very wealthy women, so they were sort of flaunting their wealth in their hair, but it was more than just the flaunting of wealth, it was also considered very sensual, very sensual. And in fact, the the women, again, you read, it was not just the wealthy women who would do this, but it was what um, is called, and this is a word we probably don't use much today, but courtesans would would wear, that is... um, Oh, uh, it's a modern word that's not going to get me in trouble. Um, escorts would wear. Okay? Uh, the, the morally stained women of the court would dress in these fashions in very extravagantly, very sensual ways with their hair. All right? Beyond that, he says costly garments. You see that? So there's something about the hairdo and the way it's been put together that Paul says, Christian women in Ephesus, you need to avoid this, and these costly garments. And I think what's going on here is you've got to think about a world in which most people had one, maybe two sets of clothes. It's unlike today. You and I, we are very, very, very wealthy. So we have closets. In fact, we don't know what to do with all the clothes that we have, and we keep buying more all the time. But for most people, certainly the people of that day, and for most people in the world, they don't have access to that kind of clothes. So these women would, would flaunt their wealth by purchasing these very costly, very expensive, these very extravagant garments, and then wear them to church. All right, we're talking about Christian women here. And that is an attack on the unity of the body. It, it clearly points out those are the haves and the have-nots. Okay? And so Paul is, again, saying that this is not modest. This is calling attention to your external appearance through the, the, the extravagant uh, dress, you know, clothing that you would wear, and these hairdos that would flaunt your wealth and be very sexually alluring to the men of the congregation. And evidently what's happening here is that the women in Ephesus are falling into this trap of worldliness by imitating the, in these fashion uh, styles, and in the process they're, they're betraying their Christian testimonies. So Paul has very strong words to them here. He says, right, I want you to adorn yourself pr- with, pro- with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not in these ways that, are, that the wealthy and the worldly adorn themselves and then instead look at verse 10 very strong contrast here but rather but rather i want you to adorn yourself i want you to beautify yourself but i want you to do it by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness in other words that your your beauty that i want you to show forth is your christian character one who has been converted from darkness to has become a child of light and now your life demonstrates the light of Christ within you now this is not like saying you know not very attractive but she's got a nice personality that's not what paul is saying here okay paul is saying that there is a there is a very attractive way for women christian women to adorn themselves and it is not in the externals it is instead in a character of a life that is committed to Jesus Christ. These good works, you'll notice them here, right? By, rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So, what kind of good works, Paul, are you talking about? Well, here they are. I mean, look at verses 11 to 15. Here in verses 11 to 15, Paul, Paul calls them out. He says, okay, so that in the public gathering in the church, they, the women must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. This is some of the good works that he is calling for the women to, betray, or to, to display their godliness through. And then down into verse 15, they'll be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So the same kinds of things, of faith and love and, and embracing their their creation role as the mothers of the next generation. You can look over in chapter 5 and see some other places where he talks about this. Down in verse 5, he talks about widows who have fixed their hope on God and continue in entreaties and prayers night and day. These are the good works that Paul is calling out. Look at verses 9 and 10, right? She has a reputation for good works, uh, hospitality, washes the saints' feet, assists those in distress, and so forth. You look at verses 13 and 14. Kind of give the contrary here. So it's it's to avoid idleness and gossips and busybodies and, and so forth. And so these are the things Paul is saying that ought to adorn a Christian woman. And as they adorn a Christian woman, they make her beautiful. They make her absolutely beautiful. Beautiful in the sight of God, and beautiful in the sight of Christian men. Christian men. One writer in commenting on this section, I think he has summarized Paul's teaching here really well, and he says the following. He says, a woman of godly virtue avoids dress, hairstyles, makeup, and other adornment that is either extravagant or erotic or both. She avoids making statements with her outward adornment that are either lavish or sensual. In fact, she, ad- she avoids making a statement by her outward adornment at all. Christian women should be beautiful. They should be beautiful. That is what God would have, ladies, for all of you, that you would be beautiful. The question that we have to ask is, how do I become beautiful? Do I take my view of beauty from the world that is living in rebellion against God? Or do I take my view of beauty from what the Word of God Says, is of an adoring beauty. How does a Christian woman beautify herself? By deflecting attention away from her outward appearance. By deflecting attention away from her outward appearance. And instead, calling attention to her godly character. If we could get a hold of just that, just that, when we go clothes shopping, it would really help. It would really help. That's what Paul would have in the church at Ephesus. That's what Paul would have in the church in Upland, two millennia later. May the Spirit of God apply the truth where it is needed, in each and every one of our hearts. Come back next week. We got a lot more to develop on this topic. Let's pray. Father, the message of the cross is a countercultural message, for it obliterates human achievement. It strips away all pretense, all social distinctions, all claims of privilege or wealth or righteousness or education. It strips it all away, our Father, for they are but filthy rags with regard to the debt of our own soul. Christ and him alone can provide the righteousness that we need. And he offers it freely to us if we will but reach out in faith and believe. But our Father, as Paul has been laboring away here in the second half of this letter to the church in Ephesus, salvation received transforms. Transforms it changes how we view the world how we view ourselves it changes our priorities in life what's important what we love what we hate it changes the entire direction of our lives and it changes that of our children and our descendants and not the least of which, our Father, of these changes with with regard to how we understand feminine beauty. What does it mean to be beautiful? What does it mean to adorn oneself as a woman in a way that is appealing to you and to Christian men? I pray for my sisters here this morning, I pray, Father, that a hard message that has just been delivered, that you would help them to process it. That you would help their husbands, if they're married, to process it with them. That you would help the the daughters of our church, the sons, the singles, to process these realities. They are so countercultural. And Father, may you enable us to take the truth of what we've heard this morning and begin to implement in our own lives that our values would become your values. For we love you and desire and want to desire what you love and desire. Help us. For Jesus' sake, amen.